Chapter 3 of A Water Biography by Robert C. Leslie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 3 I exhibit at the Royal Academy, get married, and moored for a time near London as an artist, but gravitate toward the river at Greenwich, a floating dockyard there, I charter an old boat, the lower Thames in those days, I make a studio in a boat, too late for a tide, Join waterman's boats in tow of a West Indiaman. Pleasures of towing. Under the bows of a brig. Save my tide. Cheating the tide. Blackwall Point. Men ashore take an interest in my boat. Discover why, just in time to save her mast. Meet J. W. M. Turner early in life, and in the Royal Academy later. The English Merchant Seaman of 1842. I quote Shakespeare on tides, but not taking his advice, move my family to Sidmouth. Regret of conscientious R.A. at this step. How I consoled myself for loss of his friendship. Harry Conant and England's Rose. A fisherman's life on Sidmouth Beach. I build a boat. A rival boat builder. Soon after this trip to New York, my name appeared in the Royal Academy catalogue as the painter of a picture called Morning at Sea. And three years later, I exhibited a large picture, a deck scene with many figures, entitled A Complaint from the Folksle, suggested by Dana's wonderful book, Two Years Before the Mast. I was now regularly moored in the London swim of artists, and known familiarly among them as Bob Leslie. But a far stronger link in my ground tackle was a young wife and home of our own. This, however, was at Blackheath, whence, as all Londoners know, a steep descent leads easily down to the Thames at Greenwich, following which, just below the hospital, I fell in one day with an amphibious old naval architect who, hermit crab-like, had appropriated and roofed over the derelict hulk of a Margate hoy, on which he lived by tinkering up boats and barges, a better trade, as most shipbuilders know, than building new ones. 
his floating dockyard was reached by a long plankway projected from the adjoining marsh, while moored in the stream beyond it lay a small open sprit-sailed pleasure-boat, with a board hanging over her side stating that she was for hire, together with the well-known signal at her masthead that she was for sale. I had formed a plan of establishing a small floating studio on this part of the lower Thames, and here, under my nose, was the exact article. It is true she appeared well stricken in years, but after a survey I concluded that there was enough paint and old tar about her, both inside and out, to hold her together and that in my trade she might be classed A-1 for the next two months, especially as her owner was ready to let on a repairing lease at a weekly rent of twelve shillings, which included not only all marine stores then on board, but a well-worn bit of chain to which she rode when in port. My objection to the age of this mooring being wisely overruled by her owner, on the ground that a stronger one might lead to her being sunk if fouled by a passing barge, in place of merely breaking adrift. No one today would care to sail on the lower Thames above Erith Reach, and even below it. The river is so crowded with heavy steam traffic an hour or two before and after high water that one has to wait some time for a chance of crossing it in a small sailing boat. While scientific arrangements of sewage outfalls, etc., gas and glue works have so changed the flavor of thames water between greenwich and gravesend that clothes once wetted with it are not so nice to wear until washed again fifty years ago however this part of the river had quite a pleasant tidal tarry flavor and more traffic was then carried on under canvas than steam. Fleets of collier brigs, sailing barges, and fishing boats, it is true, filled the river in places with now and then an East Indian man slowly picking her way among them in tow of a feeble paddle tug and there were the old Gravesend, Margate, and Ramsgate packets. But few of these craft move very fast, when colliers and even small sailing ships worked under canvas through Blackwall Reach almost to the dock gates or into the pool below London Bridge. Woolwich and Galleon's reaches were then my favorite cruising and sketching grounds, with now and then an extended trip down to Long Reach or into the Hope. My plan of operations, when the tide suited, was to drop down the river under sail or paddles with the ebb, 
and having selected a spot suitable for sketching, to let my boat ground upon a shelving mud-flat, after which, as the tide left her, she would sit quietly upright, affording a steady platform for an easel or sketching-stool for several hours, or until she floated again with the returning tide. Thus I became, as it were, a kind of artistic tide-waiter. One drawback to this arrangement was the loss of the first part of a flood-tide on return voyages. And on one occasion, after a longer trip down the river than usual, and making many tacks across the lower end of long reach against a fresh wind, a shrimper in company hailed me with, Why don't you haul down a reef? And on my saying, Because I'm in a hurry, he asked, Why, where are you bound? And being told Greenwich, gave me the comforting information that, I should not save my tide, adding, If I was bound up as far as that, I'd get a pluck up astern of one of them big weasels under steam, alluding to some large merchantmen then towing into the reach. The man was right, and I struck my mast at once, and lay by on my oars, just clear of the track of the first, a bark-rigged West India man. She had a long train of watermen's skiffs, etc., astern, and throwing my painter to the last of these, I found myself speeding rapidly up the river against the wind, a very pleasant change after thrashing to windward in a dumpy little boat, with spray flying over one at every jump. I have often observed that a state of real content or comfort, either afloat or ashore, is rarely allowed us for over half an hour, or, say, the time it takes to smoke a pipe without some petty matter or person turning up to mar it. And sure enough, I had hardly got through my first pipe astern of the bark, than she began to thread her way among a fleet of coal brigs beating up the river under sail, in doing which they continually crossed our track. And I soon saw that though the tug and bark took care to keep clear of those lumbering craft, no allowance was made for the string of boats astern, which were expected to look out for themselves, either by shortening up their tow-lines or letting go altogether. Unluckily, I was the last of the string and began to foresee an early end to my rapid progress. For one great brig was actually standing across the river in such a way that though she might go clear of the leading boats, 
she appeared certain to cut off the two last. All the watermen in the boats ahead, of course, took this view, and to make sure of clearing the brig had shortened in their painters until they were close under the West India man's stern. The men in the boat ahead of me were of the Thames pilot class, and used to close shaves of this sort. I, of course, was not. And as the great bluff bows of the brig came nearer and nearer to my little cockle shell, I asked them rather anxiously whether I had not better drop astern. And the answer of, Well, I don't know. Hold on a bit. You can always let go, was not altogether satisfactory. With a wave of yeasty foam before them, the brig's bows were within a few yards of us, and I was on the point of casting off my tow-line when the man ahead called out, Hold on! Shear your boat straight at her, and then ard over t'other way. You'll clear arta all. While I did by a foot, or close enough to fend my boat off the shining, pitching bow of the brig with one hand as I steered with the other. This evolution, however, cost me eighteen pence. For as my boat sheared across and across in the wake of the waterman's skiff and jumped in the swell, my painter contrived to unship his rudder yoke, for the loss of which, of course, I had to pay. But I saved my tide and was home in good time for dinner. In those days, single-handed, Floating studios were rare upon the lower Thames, and as I lay high and dry on a mud bank, I was often an object of pity or sarcastic congratulations to passing barges with, A nice tide you been and made of it, young man, etc. While as a Gravesend packet swept past my carefully selected resting place, even her passengers seemed to understand the helplessness of my position. On the other hand, as the wash from her paddles broke in miniature rollers against my mud bank, I in turn thanked my stars that the floor of my little studio was undisturbed by the swell of passing steamers. It was by carefully following the light draft Thames barges that I first learnt the art of cheating an adverse tide by working the eddies, and how to make the best of a fair one by a mid-channel course from point to point. One fine morning, however, I narrowly escaped coming to grief in making the best of a fair tide around Blackwall Point, which separates Blackwall from Bugsby's Reach. 
I was running dead before a strong, fair wind and tide, when all at once I found myself an object of unusual interest to a gang of riverside navies ashore. They said nothing, but I was near enough to note that they all stopped work and looked at my boat as though they expected to see her blow up or go to the bottom. She was not a boat to do anything in a hurry, but at this particular time she was swinging round that low point of Thames mud at something approaching six miles an hour. Some minutes before coming to this point, I had noted the masts of a sunken schooner standing almost in midstream, and was about to round the point inside them without seeing the real cause of the men's interest in my boat. In the form of a hawser stretched taut as a bar about three feet above the water from the main mast of the wreck to the shore, where it led to a winch or capstan at which the men were at work and which they had only stopped just to see whether my boat's mast would go by the board or capsize her on fouling the rope. There was no time to get my mast down, and I had barely brailed up my sail and got out my paddles to get her head to wind before she was within a few yards of the hawser. The tide was running so strongly round the point that pulling hard against it and the wind for some time I only just held my own. My brailed-up sail held a lot of wind and I dare not quit my paddles an instant to lower it by taking down the sprit. But after the first flutter of excitement was over, the sight of those grinning navvies gave me strength, and I found, to my relief, that slowly but surely I gained a ground, and after fifteen minutes' hard work I was far enough to windward of the wreck to set my sail again, and pass outside her and the long rope connection with the navvies ashore, who now lost all interest in me and my boat, and continued their work of righting the sunken vessel, with a view, no doubt, to her ultimate resurrection. There are, I suspect, few among living artists who made the personal acquaintance of J. W. M. Turner earlier than I did, as a boy, in the year 1834, when staying with my father at Lord Egremont's at Petworth, and I shall never forget how, while watching some trimmers set for pike in the lake in the park, Turner gave me an early lesson in seamanship by rigging scraps of paper torn from his sketchbook upon three little sticks stuck in a bit of board to represent a full-rigged ship, 
which to my great delight he then launched upon the lake it was sixteen years later that i met him for the last time at the academy when he did me the honor of walking up to a picture of mine entitled a sailor's yarn and after looking at it for a moment said in his strange laconic way i see a gull i like your color i have this picture now and have reproduced it here as it gives the type of english merchant jack of forty-five years back as compared with the narrow-chested round-shouldered steamboat deckhand of to-day thanks to sail drill and training our naval blue jacket still retains a sailor's figure while among the crews of our large merchant sailing ships one still meets fine broad-shouldered scandinavian seamen who have been trained on board some smart norwegian brigantine there are many nice sayings and proverbs about what we ought to do to secure success in life any one of which strictly followed should no doubt lead to eminence in any career shakespeare's there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries sounds well here and i lost that tide i fear together with my swim in the art world of london in the year eighteen fifty four by moving my goods and chattels by road van from london to sidmouth devon this was before mr ruskin's dictum had gone forth that no landscape painter had any business in london and this step was much deplored by certain elder brethren of art among these was one who said terrible things about talents stowed away etc but he was a man who kept a ten-horsepower conscience and as one of the hangers had that very year kindly and conscientiously rejected my picture at the r a i feel now that he was a true friend but consoled myself for his loss at the time or soon afterwards amongst the sidmouth fishermen and their boats the first of these new friends was a weather-beaten-looking man i met as he landed on the beach after his night's work among the crabs and lobsters in a small fourteen-foot boat he looked worn out and tired as he stepped out of his boat with a heavy basket at his back 
and merely dropped a small anchor on the sand and giving his boat a shove seaward left her riding to it a few yards off shore it was a fine spring morning and i asked him if he were going to sea again he said no he was bound home for a nap till high water i had not been afloat for months and as she lay offshore head to wind under her mizzen the little boat looked so inviting that i offered the man a shilling for an hour or two's use of her he answered in a simple confiding way take her sir for as long as you like england's rose was rigged with a lug sail forward and a mizzen and i had a delightful cruise in her along shore under the lofty cliffs harry conant and i were friends from that day and i had the use of his boat for anything i liked to give him whenever the tide and his work suited unlike most of the local fishermen i found that my new friend had sailed in the coal trade and began life on board a small west country coaster of which his father was skipper and that like all the old school of seamen he was an accomplished rigger and sailmaker he was also carpenter enough to keep his own boats in repair besides making his own sails and those for most of the other boats on the beach the work and life of a fisherman who goes down to sea in small open boats among the surf rolling in upon an unsheltered shore is precarious in more ways than one his boat must be small and light yet strong and seaworthy to stand the weather and heavy strains in launching her through and hauling her out of the surf while in spells of bad weather he has to pass days of enforced idleness on shore when day after day the sea rolls in upon his port in a way that defies any attempt to go out to his work from it all this kind of thing was new to me but i could have hardly selected a better spot for the study of it than the half-mile of shifting shingle across the valley between peak hill and the ham or mouth of the little sid under salcombe hill this beach is backed shoreward by a strong sea-wall built years ago by rennie when a pier and harbour was proposed for the place and the older fishermen said that in preparing a foundation for the western arm of this harbor masses of rock were blown up and destroyed which when they were young afforded some shelter from southwesterly gales in landing or launching now there is none the sea-wall though a fine piece of work 
causes such variations in the level of the beach that at times the only retreat for boats after a succession of sou'westerly gales is by means of a kind of ladder upon which they are hauled over the wall to a place of safety though after long spells of fine weather the shingle will lie against the wall within a foot or two of its top these are some of the difficulties the men have to contend with in rough on-shore gales while owing to the lofty cliffs for miles on either side of the valley the sea with an offshore wind is vexed with squalls such as are only met with on mountain lakes it was on this inhospitable strip of beach that i first really became the owner of a boat because i found as summer came and with it the mackerel season that every boat on the beach Conants included were at sea nearly all day i did not buy my boat ready-made but in the form of half-inch elm planks and other wood which being a bit of a carpenter after many consultations with conant and the help of some copper nails i contrived to put together during the winter in an empty coach-house her sails were made, of course, by Conant, and when finished, a low pair of wheels was arranged, so that, when balanced upon them, she was easily moved by one man down to the sea from which my house was a mile distant. Long, however, before the boat was finished, it was known on the beach that Mr. Leslie was building a boat. And one after another, nearly every fisherman in the place dropped in upon my dockyard. So that if the finished boat had turned out a failure, it would not have been for want of practical criticism and advice. I heard in this way that I had a rival amateur naval architect at work at the same time in the shape of a shoemaker and fisherman combined and in spite of the fact that the art of shoemaking is rather akin to that of boat building i learnt from some of my visitors that my rival's craft had after all his efforts developed a midship section six inches wider than he expected competition however brings out the best qualities even of amateur boat builders and though she rather exceeded her designed beam my rival's boat cut mine out altogether as a bit of decorative color on the beach it is surprising what an interest every tap of a hammer has when riveting together the planks of your own craft and what a pleasure it was when the foam was ready at last for sea 
to find oneself the owner of a handy little boat, fifteen feet six inches by six feet three inches wide, at a cost of a little over eight pounds. And here I may note that on leaving Sidmouth, after many years' use, I sold her for the same money. End of chapter 3